0: podcast where five psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, and two of us American, serve you cutting-edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan Howes, a clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California.
1: And I am Dr. Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area.
2: And I'm Joanna Boyd, also a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area.
3: I'm Chris Boyden, a psychotherapist from Coquilla.
4: And I'm Daniela and I'm a psychotherapist from Los Angeles, California. Welcome. Welcome.
0: What a wonderful, Thank you. wonderful surprise. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I feel a little, uh, you know, I feel a little better having two Americans here today. It's kind of nice all this canadian yeah. energy it's just it's overwhelmingly polite and positive and i'm glad to have another
4: <laughs> i'm glad to be here with you
1: <laughs> ryan's been outnumbered for so long we're still
4: out we're, we're still outnumbered yeah. yeah
0: we are but you know it's it's growing who knows it's, it's in the right growing.
3: direction yeah
0: get up to 50 50 at some point uh, we're really happy to have Daniela here tonight because this is our book club meeting, and we're going to be talking about how the mind-body connection and how pain and the brain work together. So this is, uh, this is
3: really fun to have a special guest. For sure. Yeah, so Daniela, actually, she has a master's in social work from the University of Southern California, USC. Uh, she's a director of content at the Pain Psychology Center in Los Angeles. She trains all new clinicians in pain reprocessing therapy and demonstrates a holistic and uh, actionable approach to overcoming chronic pain.
4: Thank you for reading the blurb from the website. I appreciate it.
3: I made a few changes. (laughs) I took a few things out, (laughs) rearranged a few words. (laughs)
4: No, I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I started working at the Pain Psychology Center uh, treating patients. um, And I got pretty close to Alan Gordon, who wrote the way out. And um, he kind of asked me to become the director of content at the Pain Reprocessing Therapy Center. And so we actually co-founded it together. um, And now I am training all of the people who come through the center And I think we're training about 100 to 200 people almost every other month at this point. Um, So it's really exciting. And, you know, our focus and our mission is really to change the way that chronic pain is treated uh, worldwide. And, you know, we're doing this slowly, but also kind of quickly since we only opened up about six months ago.
1: Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's wild.
4: Yeah, it really is.
1: But I guess that just also goes to show... Um, just how, how important that topic is, chronic pain, and how many people suffer with it and uh, how it shows up in clinical practice. And um, so that's great.
4: Wow. Yeah. I mean, there are 40 to 50 million people in the US and I know maybe you Canadians uh, don't care about that. No, <laughs> I'm just joking, but 40 to 50 million Americans uh, suffer from chronic pain and I believe it's 1.2 billion worldwide. So it's a very serious wow. problem.
3: Yeah. I think it's safe to say that Canadians are always worried about the Americans, you yeah. <laughs> know, our neighbors to the South. So including the chronic pain, but that's amazing. So how big is your team then at the, the clinic in Los Angeles?
4: So at the clinic, the pain psychology center, there's about 50 clinicians. Um, uh, but at the pain reprocessing therapy center, it's just me, Alan, uh, one other person and a couple of other trainers. So it's, it's still, it's still pretty, pretty new and pretty small, but Going fast,
0: yeah, no kidding.
4: Wow, mm-hmm. that's
0: amazing. That's amazing. Well, great. Let's uh, let's get started here. What do you say? Do um,
1: you actually, um, pause for our jingle.
0: Yes, we, Daniela, we we actually have a jingle that we kind of insert here of Joanna singing our uh, book club song. So we'll just pause for I just a that. moment to uh, to add the the jingle. And here we go. Oh, what a song, Joe!
1: <laughs> My <You're> goodness! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to be a real treat for you, Daniela, when you listen oh, back. I'm so excited. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is. It is quite a treat, no doubt about it. So we all read the way out and and learned about a bit about pain reprocessing therapy, and I'm just, uh, I guess our readers maybe have read along as well. Hope so. Some of our our listeners uh, have read along, Um, but we should probably, as we usually do, we kind of define our terms and start off by just talking about what, what is this topic about? And we have an expert here with us. So Daniela, what, what is pain reprocessing therapy?
4: Um, So pain reprocessing therapy is the first uh, evidence-based practice or, you know, modality of therapy that is proven to work to treat chronic pain and not just pain management, but the treatment of chronic pain. Um, and pain reprocessing therapy is kind of just a system of techniques um, to, to turn off the learned neural circuits in the brain that are misfiring, that there is something wrong in the body when actually there isn't. Mm.
0: Okay. Now, yeah. now, when we're talking about chronic pain, uh, some people, May be unfamiliar with that, or they've heard it, but they're not really sure what, what it is that we're talking about regarding chronic pain. Um, is this a uh, is this tennis elbow that we're talking about? Is this fibromyalgia? Is this what what are we talking about with chronic pain?
4: I mean, yeah, well, that it definitely can include all of those things: fibromyalgia, migraines, IBS. Uh, back pain, neck pain, joint pain, um, all of that. But, you know, sometimes it starts off with an injury, you know, and it's acute pain that turns into chronic pain or it just kind of like randomly crops up on its own. Um, and then, you know, recent studies have shown that chronic back pain and neck pain and fibromyalgia and all these other um, symptoms um are more likely to be rooted in psychological or, you know, neurobiological issues rather than in structural or physical uh, problems in the body.
0: Now, this is where we get to the area that's maybe the touchiest area of this, right? Which is where people um, may may hear this, may hear some of the words you're saying and think, wait a minute, are you saying this is all in my head? Are you saying this is I'm just making this up or I'm, uh, you know, I just gotta think my way out of this. And I know that that's a big topic in the book. So maybe you could share a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. You know, all pain is real pain and you know, all pain regardless of whether it's rooted in a structural problem or not is generated in the brain. So although, although the pain can be addressed psychologically, it does not imply that the pain is imaginary or that it's kind of made up. It it feels the same, whether it's rooted in something structural or not.
0: Yeah, well said. So, so then the, the, the mechanism for helping people identify, and I know a big, big portion of the book is, is about, okay, is this, is this something that is neuroplastic pain, or is this something that is uh, Mm -hmm. an actual structural Um, You know, a a component of pain that actually has a structural basis. Um, I know there's there's a bit of a craft to try to determine between the two.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's actually an appendix at the back of the book that give I think it's about 12 criteria. Um, And as I practice, I've gotten much better. Usually within the first few minutes of a session, I can tell whether this is neuroplastic or not. Um, Obviously, there are cases where I'm unsure. Um, And if I am unsure, I do refer to a physician because it's out of the scope of my practice to um, try to treat someone who has a structural or physical problem with talk therapy. That would be really unethical. Um, But I have gotten pretty good at diagnosing on my own just from doing this multiple times.
3: Yeah, That's that's a really good point because often we need to connect with clients and ensure that they're getting the medical support that they need. And I know the appendix actually talks about that. Is there, is there um, any uh, medical diagnosis or any anything that's been found from a medical perspective in terms of what's causing the pain? Right. Um, what other kind? Of, I'm I'm so curious. Within minutes of talking to clients, what kind of things do you look for the most? Because there's a lot of things on that appendix.
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of times I'll hear that they have multiple symptoms, and if I hear that, if they have you know, head pain and back pain and um, IBS. It's like, that's almost an automatic uh, sign pointing to neuroplastic pain because the likelihood of someone suffering from all of these different symptoms and it all being chronic pain, that's rooted in physical damage is really rare because chronic pain, you know, rooted in structural damage is, is pretty rare in and of itself. So to have multiple symptoms, it makes it super unlikely. Um, so that's one of the biggest tell all signs. Um, another one is if they have a history of anxiety or a history of depression um, or any kind of adverse childhood experiences, um, that's a really big sign. Yeah,
0: what, one of the examples in the book is of someone who comes in with uh, chronic pain of both wrists and <laughs> this idea of, of these, this happening on both sides of the body um, would be rare to, to have a real structural basis to it two different sides of your, or ends ends of your appendage there, it's, it's, it's difficult to, for that to happen. So that's a a lot of different, these signs are really interesting.
4: Yeah. Or sometimes I'll ask my patients if um, they have family members who have different chronic pain symptoms and if their parent had back pain or other symptoms, um, just the mere like fact that they have this awareness around there can be these type of pain symptoms. It'll kind of arise just because it, it's so familiar to them, like they've grown up with it. And so the moment that they feel some twinge in their back, like, oh my God, this must, must be the same pain that my mom has endured for, you know, decades.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Have, have any of us uh, regular podcasters here, have any of you guys experienced any of this uh, sort of chronic pain issue that
3: you've aware of i wouldn't obviously lots of pain but i wouldn't say it's ever been chronic mm-hmm. um so it might be lower back pain or something like that but usually within a few days it does the intensity of it improves right yeah so i'm for, very fortunate i haven't dealt with a lot of chronic pain no yeah but it's no tons of people that have though of course certainly mm-hmm. why, why this book is was so compelling right
4: sure yeah it's interesting because I just had a conversation with um, Dave Clark. He gave a speech to the whole pain psychology center about an hour ago. Um, and he was talking about, well, what is it that makes, you know, someone more you know susceptible to, you know, having chronic pain or from an acute an- injury to kind of developing into chronic pain? What is the difference between people that one will, you know, get this and other people won't. Um, and so really kind of went back to all the criteria of adverse childhood experiences and there are different traits and there are different triggers or um, there are different kind of negative emotional patterns that these people kind of gravitate towards and because of that you know that's why they'll have these pain symptoms and that's kind of the commonality that I'll see between people who do develop chronic pain.
3: Yeah. yeah what resonated with me too is that the negative self-talk, right? so Mm -hmm. you know from a cbt perspective we talk about cognitive distortions um so a lot of critical thinking and and whatnot um yeah seem to be a a bit of a trait but trauma you know Mm -hmm. keeps on popping up
1: uh, in the clinical
3: setting right Yeah.
1: yeah we talk about trauma a lot on this podcast probably because some of us enjoy talking about trauma um But yeah, no, no. I think you make some really good points about that, right? Like, So just the adverse childhood experiences, but also the witnessing or the normalizing within a family unit and how that kind of gets passed on. And then when you're looking at that, well then if that's the um, family environment that you're growing with, what protective factors are you then establishing if you're witnessing, like the person who is there to teach you those protective factors maybe doesn't know them themselves. Right. and then here we go now we just have some intergenerational aspects to this so yeah very very interesting something in my own client base that I've noticed um, is there seems to be some sort of tendencies uh culturally as well as a big indicator and whether that is or whether or not that has something to do with the adverse childhood experiences or traumas from those cultures so certain, what generation are they Canadian? What, um, if they've immigrated here, first or second generation, and if they've immigrated here, um, the trauma from where they came from, like what actually contributed to them coming here sometimes can play a, a part, or at least that's what I've noticed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I ask you guys because I, about every six months have a a nice lower back pain issue. So as I was, Mm. as I was reading the book, I was becoming very aware of, okay, what, you know, how might this uh, relate to this, uh, to this treatment and, and diagnosis? And I, I I think there's a lot to be said for that. I'm sure lower back pain is something you encounter, encounter quite a bit, Daniela.
4: Oh yeah, it's the uh, the most popular one actually oh, that good. I that I see. <laughs> so you can be cured.
0: I believe it. I believe it. So getting a little bit into the treatment of this is uh, is is very interesting, very fascinating as well, because there's a lot of mindfulness that goes along with this, uh, at least in the initial stages, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us how how to apply mindfulness and pain? Because a lot of people would say, gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to look at my pain. I don't want to sit with that. That's uh, that seems really uncomfortable. So what, what would we do there?
4: Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, there's two different ways that we kind of treat this. Number one is there's the psychoeducation piece where we, you know, teach people like, okay, what is going on in your body? And sometimes once we tell them what is going on from like a, you know, a neurobiological perspective, their pain goes away. Cause so they're like, Oh, I know what it is. And that kind of like dissipates the fear, but sometimes we need to do two things, right? One thing is educating them about what's going on and then showing them that, you know, they're actually safe and that their body is okay. And so we use mindfulness to kind of like look into the body, right. And expose them to the thing that they're scared of, which is the pain, but in a safe way. And so if they can do that and you know, attend to their, you know, physical sensations or this physical pain from a curious and objective way, then that'll kind of turn off the fear. Um, And then they'll kind of get this corrective experience where it's like, oh, well, if my pain turned off now, that means I have the capacity to turn it off all the time. And that means that there's nothing that's physically wrong with me, right? Because they get this evidence. If they had a broken foot and they were kind of like walking on, there wouldn't be a moment when they're walking, that they wouldn't feel the pain, right? The pain is there to protect us from causing more tissue damage. And so if just through the use of mindfulness, their pain goes away, they get that evidence that there is nothing wrong with their body and that their body is safe. And so that's how the mindfulness piece is used.
2: And you noted Daniela, like around safety um, or in the book, at least if someone, doesn't feel safe would you say that you can build up that safe like it's okay if you can only be mindful for even a matter of seconds I think Alan Gordon noted it could you know a patient was just like one or two seconds able to think of the pain then they had to stop and so does that help someone build safety is just taking your time with it or there is there anything else that you can do to build the safety around approaching or um,
4: facing that pain or noticing it, I guess? Uh, Yes, I mean, you can start really slow, but there are also other tools that you can use to get rid of the pain. If, you know, the level of fear around the pain is too high, um, we'll do other types of mindfulness exercises like leaning into positive sensations and, you know, it's if you if you think about someone who gets into like a car accident and um they're, they're driving for the first time, they're not going to like get on a highway, but they're going to start in a parking lot. And mm. so that's kind of what's going on with leaning into positive sensations. It's we want to get them comfortable with a more neutral thing, like that parking lot with those neutral sensations. And once they can become comfortable with that, maybe they can start looking into those more painful sensations and being exposed to those things or exposed to that, you know, highway, so to say, right?
0: OK, I was so. I was catching myself uh, kind of halfway wishing I was experiencing one of those lower back issues while I was reading the book So I was like, oh, I'd love to practice this right now. Um,
3: that would have been like a paradoxical intervention, though, wouldn't it? Like you want to experience the pain and then the pain actually subsides? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> but I but I definitely
0: relate to the fear. And I know that the fear of the pain is a really is a major component of this treatment overall. Um, and I could definitely relate to those, those times when I have this week or two of, of lower back pain and I wake up in the morning and I like remember, oh, I've got this back thing and oh, I'm going to really feel it's going to hurt so bad to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And that and I know I'm just setting myself up for for that very cycle of fearing the pain and then experiencing it and probably um, exacerbating the pain as a result. Right.
4: Absolutely. And fear can be kind of an interesting word because some of my clients will be like, oh, well, I'm not really afraid of the pain, but then I'll ask them, you know, well, are you frustrated? Does it make you annoyed? Like what are kind of the adjectives that you would put to it? And if those words are things that would put your brain on high alert or make your brain feel unsafe, then, you know, that falls under the umbrella of fear. So if you're frustrated, you know, that your day is going to be ruined, right? that does fall under the umbrella of fear. Maybe you're not scared of the symptoms themselves, but you're scared about what the consequences are going to be if the pain does, you know, come on.
3: For sure. I guess that kind of coincides with the mindfulness practice as well, because you're trying to notice the fear, right? Or I think in the book they call it kind of catching the fears. So those mm-hmm. those those sensations or feelings or beliefs that pop into your mind, right?
4: Yeah. And something that i use with my clients is i call it the three c's and i you know i think another clinician at the pain psychology center came up with it i think her name is um erica she calls it the three c's which is catch congratulate and carry on so it's catch the negative thought or catch the fear Mm. congratulate yourself for noticing it Mm. and then kind of carry on usually using some type of mindfulness technique or doing something that you enjoy right you know a lot of chronic pain patients they're kind of stricken of all joy in their lives Um, and it can be really, really dark. Um, and so if we can help them find pockets of joy in their life and really like lean into that, it can be like the first way out of this really dark place. Hmm. That's
3: great.
2: And, And, and you noted as well, which I think is helpful is that if the pain is too high to even do the somatic tracking or mindfulness, it's just do the avoidance behaviors, which the book talks about how. In some cases, the avoiding actually can be helpful just to go that way. And then when the pain is at a low amount or just beginning, that's the best time to kind of practice that noticing the somatic tracking. So it's just, I like the positive spin on avoidance behaviors, I guess.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with this, with this um, clientele, it's, Pain patients are usually part of their, you know, I was talking about traits, part of the characteristic traits are being really perfectionistic, being really type A, really want to, -hmm. you know, problem solving. And so when you say you have permission to use these avoidance behaviors and not only permission, but it's actually the best thing that you can do in those moments where the fear is too high, then that makes them feel like, oh, okay, I have a plan. I'm like, I know that might be feeding into this perfectionistic attitude, but like at the same time, you can't rip away that safety net when they're not ready. So I think the avoidance behaviors are really important.
2: And I guess, can we give a few examples of those? Like, I guess, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're sitting down and your pain paying up, you can stand up so you can kind of avoid that sitting position. Like, could you give some other examples uh, just for listeners as to what some avoidance behaviors could be given certain things?
4: Yeah, I actually had a client who had really bad headaches. And the only time that his headaches went away were when he was either drinking water or chewing gum. Um, So that was kind of his avoidance behavior. Um, Sometimes I'll use these avoidance behaviors as, you know, by my, like when I'm doing a somatic tracking exercise, for example, and it's like the pain is getting too high. And I notice that the level of fear is too high. I'll say, you know what, let's just go to the breath. And so the breath will be the avoidance behavior Mm -hmm. mid somatic tracking exercise Mm -hmm. and somatic tracking is, um, this mindfulness, um, using mindfulness to kind of track the pain just for anyone who doesn't know what that is, or didn't read the book.
0: It's, it's, it's an awareness you're, you're being in in a mindfulness sort of way, non-judgmental. You're not trying to change anything. You're just, uh, being aware of what the pain is doing, where it is in your body, that sort of thing. Right.
4: Mm -hmm. isn't kind of describing it
3: too, like the size of it or the sharpness of it like and uh i liked liked alan's uh usage of comedy i think it seems Mm -hmm. like he has a rich history of comedy there humor in his life but that kind of showing through a bit too in the book as well that he tries to see it in more of a um i don't want to minimize it here but he tries to use metaphors or analogies that would be a little like more lighthearted, right
4: No, that's, that is exactly what it is. You know, we, we kind of divided it to three components. So somatic tracking is mindfulness, safety reappraisal, and positive affect induction. And positive affect induction is actually just like a fancy way of saying like, be funny, lighten Mm -hmm. the mood. Um, Because when patients are usually looking at their pain, they're kind of locked onto it. And it's something that Alan calls like Hawk mode, because Mm -hmm. they're kind of glaring at it, like a, you know, predator that's, or, you know, maybe the prey, actually, that's like looking for the predator. Um, And so the way to kind of get someone to not be locked on is to actually inject a little bit of, of lightness or a little bit of joy, as I was saying before, you know, they kind of like lack that ability to let go and have and have joy. And that kind of ties back to like adverse childhood experiences, right? There's some of my patients who weren't really able to Play as children, right? And so then as adults, they don't have that playfulness. And so part of our work together is injecting that playfulness into their lives. And also maybe even with their pain, right? So we're looking at the pain, but we're thinking about something silly, right? Or we're kind of describing it like with my patients, I always use like Dora the Explorer for some reason, maybe because I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, explore the pain as if you're Dora. And then like, I start singing. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just want to be silly and like laugh at yourself and just like inject playfulness and joy.
0: Hmm. Uh, Daniela, we have to pause for a second because we are dealing with a Canadian audience as well. And are you guys familiar with Dora the Explorer up there? <laughs>
2: oh yes okay oh, yeah. all right we always have to
0: check our cultural references they have some doozies up there that we've never heard of down here so sometimes we have to check and see
4: it's also a bit outdated like my kids don't watch dora the explorer anymore but um i did as a kid so i don't know <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, it sounds back to uh just a quick daniela student we were talking about the tickle trunk so we have uh it's like the Canadian, uh, Mr. Rogers is called Mr. Dress up. You know, this tickle trunk. So Ryan had no idea what the heck we're talking about. So I don't
2: kinda, know what you're talking yeah, about. I kind of
3: threw off the whole podcast there. So that's why we need to clarify these things for both audiences the, international tic- audiences.
0: the tickle trunk is where you keep costumes that you could dress up in and then have fun. And it's, it's a lighthearted thing, but these yeah. guys just dropped tickle trunk on me. I'm like, what the hell is that?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was great. Yeah.
2: Uh, I liked the, I, like- I, I liked the, when you mentioned the Hawkeye stuff, Daniela, I liked how there was that comparison. I think it was the same comparison of just being in the ocean and watching a school of fish mm-hmm. instead. Like, so you're just the, you're, you're floating in the ocean and the, the ocean around you would be like the pain in your back and you're just noticing the fish, which would be the pain. And you're kind of like, are they together? And they'll look at them move and look at them go around. And you're just, it's a curiosity and a calm Mm -hmm. curiosity versus that Hawkeye watching the prey and dart around. Right. So it's just less intense is what the message was there. Don't be so intense when trying to think about your pain. Just, it's just that easy noticeability of it. Yeah. I thought it was just, visuals helped me. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Any metaphors that are used. And I know Brooke's a big fan of metaphors. um, It's just, and I think clients, it really clicks when they're able to
4: visualize something. So I liked that Alan had that stuff throughout his book. I think that was really helpful. Absolutely. And he really encourages all the clinicians at the pain psychology center to use that, you know, to the point where I've actually created like a list of metaphors and a list of analogies, just in case you're like mid somatic tracking exercise and you're at a loss for like a a good metaphor. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's really, really helpful and it's good to also personalize it. Like once you get to know your clients and you build rapport Mm -hmm. with them, you can kind of like use the things that are personal to them, you know, like, you know their cat. Imagine your cat, or imagine your whatever it is that makes them feel safe. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. That's great. That's good. So, so, when you're doing those exercises, though, like, do you get pushback from clients when you, totally. when you try to those yeah, metaphors, analogies, me and the lighthearted piece? Like, because I yeah. work with a lot of clients who experience chronic pain, have been in car accidents and workplace accidents, and it is a serious thing for them. So. It, I feel that it's such a it can be such a touchy thing and the last thing you want to do is try to make light of something that's caused them so much pain in their lives, right? So how would you handle some of that pushback at that phase that's of uh, your treatment?
4: That's a really good question. Um, I mean, you kind of have to be careful um, and meet your patient just like with all work. You got to meet them where they're at. And so I'm never going to jump into a first session with a client and like rip out my door of the Explorer or tickle trunk or whatever you call it. <laughs> metaphor like i'm i'm going to start out by you know gathering information just like just like every clinician does in the beginning and um finding out what's going on and first i usually do the psychoeducation piece so that you know i don't usually deal with their you know right brain with the somatic tracking and the mindfulness exercises before they kind of buy in with the left brain stuff like all that logical and um you know just like buying into their diagnosis so mm-hmm. I think that's, you just, you can't skip steps. Like you first need to, you first need to get the buy-in that, that there is nothing wrong with their body. Because like I said before, those three components, the second component is safety reappraisal. And you can't tell someone that they're safe if they think that there's something wrong with their body. So you first need to say, You know, there is nothing wrong with your body and you need to explain why and you need to back it up with scientific studies. And so, you know, within my first couple of sessions, I usually like bore all of my patients with all of my scientific studies and throw them all at them. But I think it's really helpful, especially with this group of people, you know, they really are thorough. A lot of them are really smart, really type A, really perfectionistic. And so it's very helpful to come from that perspective first get the buy-in, and then you can, you know, work on these things. Mm
1: -hmm. So when clients are coming to see you guys, um, are Mm -hmm. they mandated or are they going there by choice? Because I would think if you're going by choice or referral, but ultimately it's up to you, there would already be a little bit of openness or acceptance, knowing, Mm -hmm. like, they know what you do. So they, I would, I would hope that they would lean into it a little bit. Is that what you find? or?
4: Yeah. So most of my patients are really open in the beginning, but others will push back anyways. And so I'll actually bring that up and be like, well, you know, there is a reason you came to me. Right. (laughs) So um, but then again, there are people that are referred by their parents. Sometimes sometimes I work with teenagers. So, no, they're not mandated. Um, There's definitely choice. This is private practice. Um, So, yeah, I mean, people are usually open and we are kind of that last resort they have tried everything and they're like there's something else here and then they'll come to us so yeah
3: yeah and that reappraisal of safety it's mm-hmm. often a mantra isn't it like i am safe sending messages of safety to your to your mind and body right mm-hmm. um, are there other techniques to re help reappraise that sense of safety
4: Um, yeah, I mean, again, the same with the word fear, you know, some patients don't like the word safe, you know, they want to say something else, like, you know, this is temporary, this comes and goes, we can go back to the ocean metaphor and say this comes and goes like the waves of the ocean, you know? Um, so it's kind of also really collaborating with your patient to figure out what makes them feel safer or what takes their brain off of, you know, high alert or Hawk mode.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So that's of course meeting with clients. It's different for everyone. Has to be you have to customize that to their to that sense of safety for them or their interests, right?
4: Absolutely.
0: A, a portion of the book talks about so you you've helped someone uh, gain some awareness and mindfulness, uh, assess their safety, um, do add pockets of joy into their lives, and they realize they've got some freedom from the pain. But that's not all right, because uh the idea of like a relapse or, you know, kind of let your guard down and uh oh, it's come back again. And people can feel um, disappointed sometimes. Maybe they feel upset with themselves. Oh, no, here I am back in the same place again. That's a that's a big portion of the work is kind of how you follow through beyond the uh, initial treatment, isn't it?
4: Yeah, Um I mean, it, it's. Relapse is very common. Almost everyone has relapse. I mean, if you think about your own lives, we all have some form of, of pain and of neuroplastic pain, as we call it, you know, think about when you're nervous before you give a speech, how you get butterflies in your stomach, or you get a headache when you're stressed, or, you know, you, um, Ryan, you get lower back pain. And do you notice that it correlates with your own anxiety, your own stress? And so, um, in those moments that patients will relapse, you know, it's remember the things that helped you get out of pain the first time. And also remember that pain is a danger signal, right? So pain is your alarm system. It's telling you that there's something wrong with your body, but also it could be telling you that you're not taking care of something else underneath the surface, right? It's not just, um, your body, but maybe you're not taking enough breaks. Maybe you're overworking yourself. Maybe, you know, there's too much stress and you're not taking care of yourself. And so pain is almost your alarm system to, to do that for yourself. And so a lot of times patients will get better and they'll be like, oh, okay, I can go right back to my regular life as usual, um, without taking care of themselves, without taking breaks, without, you know, taking, you know, taking the time that they need or whatever it is. And yes, of course, they'll relapse because they go right back to how they were acting before. Um, and so it'll take some time for them to recognize, oh, wait, you know, there's a way that I got out of pain and I got to do those same things. And once I do those things, my alarm system will be turned off.
0: Excellent. Yes, yeah, so there's there's a lot of, I'm sure kind of a a reassurance and, uh, and trying to help people kind of remember the steps they took in the first place to, to get back to that, that pain-free state. Mm -hmm.
3: How long does treatment usually last for? Like, um, I'm, I'm assuming it's subjective based on the individual, but like, what would the progression of it be or how many weeks or months or years does it take to help heal this neuroplastic pain?
4: For me, it's usually eight to 12 sessions. Um, And then they're completely cured, um, which is pretty amazing um, being that most of these people have gone through so much injections, medications, surgeries, and then to kind of come for some talk therapy for eight to 12 sessions and then, you know, they're done. It's incredible and it makes my job so much fun, you know, because I'm a very results driven type of person. I'm pretty type A like many of my chronic pain patients. So this is like so fun for me to get someone and then to be able to say goodbye to them, you know, after eight to 12 sessions.
3: So are you accepting referrals from Vancouver? Can we send some people down to you?
4: Absolutely. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. no, that's great.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know if you mentioned this um, before, um, before we started, but is there any trainings that you do outside of the clinicians who work at the pain reprocessing center? Like, is there, you know, for therapists like us who might want to be trained in something like this or those things offered by Alan or his team?
4: Yeah, so the Pain Reprocessing Therapy Center, um, that is where we train all clinicians. The Pain okay. Psychology Center is where all of us practice, gotcha. you know, under Alan's clinic. Gotcha. So Pain Reprocessing Therapy Center is what Alan and I and uh, uh, co-founded this training center where we actually train other clinicians in PRT. That's great.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What does that training look like, Daniela?
4: It is um, three hours of video material during the week, followed by live three-hour training every Sunday for four weeks. So it's about, you know, it's, and and the lives are actually very exciting. They're very interactive. We have practice, we bring audio clips, um, we have breakout groups. So um, really helping people, you know, throughout the week, they're kind of listening to Alan and I and whoever else kind of like talking about pain reprocessing therapy center going module by module, you know, through the steps of the treatment. And then on Sundays, it's kind of an opportunity for all the clinicians to practice whatever they've learned over the week.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like this, this approach has really taken off. Um, You know, I was looking at the uh, reviews that some people have posted and, you know, these are heavy hitters, like Aaron Beck and Gaber Mate and Andrew Weil. Andrew Wall gives really great hugs, by the way. Um, but these, these are these are heavy hitters in in our field who are really getting behind this, right? Um, so it seems like uh, people are are accepting ideas and trying to incorporate these ideas into into their therapeutic approaches, eh?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were actually just published um, in JAMA Psychiatry um, for the study we did in in uh, Boulder, Colorado um, on a hundred patients who underwent, um, PRT for four weeks, twice a week. Um, there were 66% of them that were pain, nearly pain-free and almost all of them, I think it was like 90 something, something like 96 or 97% were com- like completely, I, I don't remember the exact numbers and maybe it's because it's totally past my bedtime at this point, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but, um, I mean, staggering numbers. And what's even, you know, more exciting is that um, the uh, these these numbers held up like over the next, you know, year. They still remained pain free a year later. So great, It's That's,
3: That's great. And there's actually fMRI um, like research to back this, right? So mm-hmm. you're working with uh, medical doctors in the medical field just to document these changes happening within the brain.
4: Yeah, oh, we can't. No, yeah, they partnered with uh, Tor Torweger, um, and uh, so not only it does it go off of reported um, pain decrease, but also their brains changed. And so this is really what's real exciting in the medical community—not not only in the uh, psychological community, in the mental health field, but it's also in the medical field. People are getting really excited about it because, you know, we're actually changing brains. So that's what's really exciting.
1: Chris, I was going to say for um, our listeners who are Average Joe listeners, can you tell them what
4: an fMRI is? A functional MRI. <laughs> so, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm not going to claim to be, but I, it's just when they, you know, kind of take pictures of what's going on with the brain and see which parts of the brain light up. And so in chronic pain patients, certain parts of the brain light up, usually kind of having to do with memory. Um, and so those places don't light up. Um, after treatment, going to show that um, they did actually recover. Is that helpful? Yes.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Did you ask me to explain that, Brooke? Because I think Danielle just filled me out. did
1: such a better job. So that. did. Great. <laughs> oh no.
3: <laughs> no, it's great. Thank you.
1: I like to put them on the spot sometimes. It's so
3: one of those gotcha questions. You. Like, oh no. Yeah, Chris, <laughs> Chris can you fancy. Explain it? <laughs> yeah. I know it's a very expensive machine, hmm. and it uh, it's exactly what Danielle explained.
4: I was getting really mad at Brooke for putting
2: me on the spot. I'm like, how (laughs) did you do this, Brooke? (laughs) No, no.
3: That was for me.
0: I actually know a little bit about this if if you wanna hear. It's so so an MRI magnetic resonance imaging is resonance imaging is a snapshot. But functional magnetic resonance imaging is like a video. Like you see what's actually happening over time. And so that's how you can tell like what's actually going on moment to moment in the brain. And that's how you get a much better picture of what's happening. So that's, that's cool stuff. So is there, is there something, is there anything next? Is there, is there a next frontier that, uh, that, the research or or even your, your clinic is, is, uh, working towards Daniela.
4: We have a lot of stuff that we're working toward right now. Um, but you know, like I said, from the beginning, our mission is to really change the way that chronic pain is treated worldwide. Um, and so we want to make it more accessible to everyone. Pain psychology center is just private practice. And so, you know, like Brooke was saying before that there are so many people in different cultural, um, places that are just, more, you know, susceptible to these things. And, and we can't really reach them because we're private practice. And so we're expensive. And so we want to make this more accessible to everyone. Um, and I can't go too deeply into all of that, but we have some exciting stuff coming um, to fulfill this mission. And we're really, really excited.
3: That's great. Um, for, for our listeners who might be experiencing chronic pain themselves, besides reading the book, is there something else they can do to To get some extra support, any other resources out there? I thought I came across a um, online. uh, Yeah, sorry, a podcast.
4: There's a podcast called "Tell Me About Your Pain." Um, There's also Curable. Curable is great. Um, That's an app that is pretty accessible. Um, So those are good.
3: Good. Fantastic. I think um, one major message. I think the biggest message from today is is one of hope. My goodness.
1: Absolutely. A lot of folks
3: out there experiencing chronic pain and feeling very trapped in that pain. So, um, pretty exciting work that you're doing.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of hope and empowerment. And I feel like empowerment is really the antidote to fear, and fear is really at the root of pain. So, um, I hope that everyone feels more hopeful and empowered that they can, you know, beat this. Um, I've seen it hundreds of times. So, I feel really confident in the treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's great. Uh, Daniela, where can people find you online or find your clinic and trainings, that sort of thing?
4: Well, you can find the training center at pain reprocessing therapy And that's for therapists who would like to be trained in PRT. Um, as far as getting treatment, it's pain psychology Excellent.
0: And you guys are located here in Los Angeles, right?
4: Yes. Yes, but most uh, we work mostly virtually, so, it, you know, we can treat Canadians.
0: There, you go. <laughs> there we go. Well, this has been a pleasure to uh, speak with you and uh, enlightening for all of us. And it was great to read the book, but even even better to hear from someone who actually is doing the work currently, even past your bedtime. So thank you so much, <laughs> Daniela.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's great. Well thank you to Daniela Deutsch. Appreciate your time. And we'll just sign off for now. Uh, So that's it for us. Everyone can like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Stitcher or YouTube. Send your questions to info at mentalhealthbootcamp.com. Visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Tell a friend or two. Tell someone who has chronic pain to, uh, to write on in or visit Daniela. And we'll say goodnight for now. Good night, everybody. Bye, everybody.